Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Chris Reeve, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? Great. Good to be with you, Bill. Good, good. For uh, for my listeners who perhaps are new to the program, you may want to go back to some of the older episodes. Uh, we interviewed uh, Chris Reeve, who also happened to be a member in my ward at one time. Uh, him and I served together in uh, in the bishopric, and uh, we had an interview about uh, Chris's faith journey. We talked at length about uh, his story, and then Chris, uh, about a month or two later, did an episode on his own where he talked about the philosophical problem of evil and. And uh, both of those episodes were well-received, and, and so for the listeners, maybe go back and listen to those uh, to get a feel for, for Chris. But today, we've got him back on the program. We're going to talk about church discipline, and we're going to talk about it from a historical standing uh, and also just maybe what it means today as well. Uh, Chris, if you don't mind, uh, start us off telling us a little bit about yourself, and then uh, go ahead and get us started. Yeah, my name is Chris Reeve. I live uh, currently in the Mid-South, uh, state of Tennessee. Uh, been active in the church my whole life. Um, believe in the church. Uh, we're all on our own faith journeys and we're all in our own places there, but I'm really comfortable in the church right now. I'm really comfortable with what the church is doing and uh, I feel God active in my life. And I have thought about uh, talking about discipline with you, Bill, for a while, and so I'm glad we have this opportunity today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. This will be great. Well, I wanted to start with uh, a few New Test- Old Testament passages, just kind of sketching out scriptural history here. When we talk about church discipline, sometimes it's easy to think about it uh, just in the context of ourselves or the person that we know that's involved in it. And we may not remember or understand or think about the historical context, the chains of events that are linked, maybe distantly and, and maybe not distantly, maybe closely with uh, how the church currently functions in church discipline. So I just kind of wanted to sketch historically and scripturally some things and talk about things in our own dispensation. So we'll start with Exodus chapter 19. We remember that in this point in the narrative, Moses has led the Israelites out of Egypt, and they've crossed through the Red Sea. The Egyptians have been destroyed, and the Israelites are now in Sinai. And God speaks to Moses and tells him in verse 4, You've seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bury you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Verse 5, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Verse 6, Ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. And so here the Lord is telling Israel, He's chosen them to be a peculiar treasure above all people, chosen them to be a kingdom of priests, chosen them to be a holy nation. And this is contingent, dependent, in verse 5, on them obeying God's voice and keeping his covenant. Verse 7, Moses calls for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all the words which the Lord had commanded him. So he tells the people what the Lord has told him. Verse 8, all the people answered together, 
They were united, and they said, all that the Lord had spoken, we will do. And so the people there are receiving the words, and they're committing, in a sense, covenanting, promising to receive this from the Lord, that they will obey his voice, they will keep his covenant, and consequently, there'll be a peculiar treasure. There'll be a kingdom of priests, there'll be a holy nation, they'll be separate and distinct. When we think of the word holy, sometimes we think of something that's completely perfect, completely blameless, completely spotless, completely refined. And in a sense, that that can be what holy means. Another scriptural sense of holy is this idea of being separate, of being distinct. And so when in the Old Testament, particularly in the Old Testament, when holy is being translated from Hebrew, it kind of has this connotation of being separate and distinct rather than pure, spotless, perfect. We can think of holy being separate. So Israel is going to be separate. They're going to be different. They're going to be distinct from the rest of the world. And this is important uh, in the Old Testament narrative, and it was important to the ancient Israelites who were striving for centuries to distinguish themselves from the native Canaanites in uh, in the Levant, in the Middle East. We see some, uh, for us, really uncomfortable passages and stories that relate to the Israelites struggling to come to terms with this, struggling to draw the line about how to keep people uh, in and how to keep people out, how to define their community within appropriate bounds. Sometimes it seems like there's opposing viewpoints. For instance, we'll read in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 about loving our neighbor as ourself. We'll read in Exodus chapter 22 verse 21 about respecting strangers, not oppressing foreigners, because the Israelites were foreigners in Egypt. And so that's one hand, loving neighbors as ourselves, receiving strangers, not oppressing them. But on the other hand, we have these stories of, uh, for us, it seems like extreme or excessive brutality for stoning someone for gathering sticks on Sunday. Or uh, Joshua chapter 7, there was a, a man who disobeyed the Lord and took some things from Jericho, which the Israelites had just destroyed. And so this man and his household was completely destroyed. And there are a number of other stories like that, even a larger scales, where there are these groups of rebels that start to oppose Moses, and they're destroyed. There's a couple of uh, almost massacre-like scenes in the book of Numbers, for instance, plagues and battles and such. I wanted to turn to one account in particular, which is more of a personal account, uh, but I think it leads to a kind of a good template for us. And this is uh, Numbers chapter 12. Just like today, uh, the prophetic character was not always popular and was not always universally accepted. And so verse 1 opens with Miriam and Arian speaking against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman that he married. You could take an aside here about polygamy, but I won't really go there except just to mention that. But Aaron and Miriam's complaint is interesting. Verse 2, they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? The Lord heard it. Verse 4, the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses and unto Aaron and unto, unto Miriam, come, ye out, ye, come out ye three into the tabernacle of the congregation. And they three came out. The Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forth. And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him I will speak mouth to mouth, even apparently and not in dark speeches. And the smell of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore then were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And so this passage maybe seems a little obtuse, but 
God is telling Aaron and Miriam, yes, I speak to prophets in visions and in dreams, but Moses is so special that I speak to him face to face. Who are you to speak against my servant Moses? As the Lord departs, or in verse 10 language, the cloud departs from off the tabernacle, Miriam became leprous. Aaron sees this and says unto Moses in verse 11, I beseech thee, lay not the sin upon us, wherein we have done foolishly, and wherein we have sinned. Let her, let Miriam, not be as one dead, of whom the flesh is half consumed when he cometh out of his mother's womb. So we see here Aaron, there's kind of an interesting feminist reading that could be done here of, if Aaron and Miriam were both speaking ill of the prophet, why was only Miriam struck with leprosy? But won't go, won't go too in-depth on that one, but, but that's something that our listeners may think about or any critical reader of the Old Testament may think about. But in any case, it's I think it's kind of touching that Aaron, seeing uh, what happens to Miriam, instead of just saying, phew, I'm glad I'm out of it, I'm glad I got, got out of this one, he's kind of pleading for, for his sister. For his sister, He says, verse 12, let her not be as one dead. Lay not the sin upon us. And similarly, in verse 13, Moses, you know, in a great kind of spirit of reconciliation, he's praying to the Lord, saying, Heal her now, O God, I beseech thee. So he's praying to his to God for his sister, on behalf of his sister. You know, kind of this advocate, this mediator sort of figure that Moses was. He would intercede uh, between Israel and, and uh, God, and he's doing this again in verse 13. Kind of a touching scene here. But the Lord tells Moses that she needs to be shut out from the camp for seven days. And then she can be received again. And so verse 15, we have this, uh, I think, meaningful passage that Miriam was shut out from the camp seven days. But then it says the people journeyed not till Miriam was brought in again. I think we'll come back to that point that the people stayed with Miriam. Yes, she was not with them, but they did not go on without her. And when she came back, they were ready with open arms to receive her. I think that's significant. I think that's an important point for us to think about. There are many other passages in the Old Testament we could talk about that try to deal with this idea of how do you have a big tent, a big enough tent where you're going to love your neighbor, you're going to be kind to the stranger, the foreigner, but at the same time you're going to be separate from the world. You're going to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. How are we going to do that in an ancient Middle Eastern kind of world where the cultural context is very different, lifespans are shorter, uh, human rights are just defined and understood very differently. And so we see, you know, different stories and accounts and, and perspectives in the Old Testament. But we see this this issue kind of set up, these, these, these challenges set up about defining a holy people, a covenant people, and who's in, who's out. Well, the thing I was thinking about, Chris, as I, as I read some of these scriptures that you had kind of laid out in the outline that we shared back and forth, my, the thing that comes to mind, this is two part. One is this idea of being a peculiar people. You know, we have to come to grips with the idea that God has set us apart from the rest of the world. He wants, he wants his covenant people to be different. And then the second point kind of goes along with that. Often in the church, when we talk about discipline and we talk about different members who, who try to flirt with that line and feel like it should be okay to be that different. It should be okay to, to disagree with the brethren on issue A or issue B. And, and I myself sometimes flirt close to that line. But I think when we read these scriptures, we have to come to grips with the idea that God 
in expecting his covenant people to, to be different, to be a peculiar people, it becomes the next step that we should be, we should understand that there's going to be lines in the sand. We may not always agree where those lines are, but we should expect lines to exist. So those were the things I kind of took away as I was thinking about uh, the scriptures that you shared. Great point. Excellent point. I think that's a really big takeaway. Whether we understand uh, many of these stories and examples, I think that's less important in understanding those broader ideas that uh, for a covenant people, what that means is there's going to be people in that covenant community and people not in that covenant community. And how do you define that? Who's in and who's out? If everyone's in, well, then you don't have a covenant community again. Are you a peculiar people? Are you set apart from the world? How can you be if you are the world? Uh, but on the other hand, if you're a group of three or four or six and uh, you're being unnecessarily repressive, how can you be a treasure then? How can you be a light to the world? How can you be a, a holy nation in that sense? So it's it, it's a balance. And I think as Latter-day Saints or as, as uh, religious people in general, I think most of us recognize there's going to be some line there. And we may disagree with where that line is drawn. But if we acknowledge that there is going to be a line and that communities religious communities have some right to define where that is, and that doesn't mean that everyone in that community is going to be comfortable with that. I think that's that's good to acknowledge and good to, to understand. Uh, we, we have the freedom to try to understand these principles and engage with them in our own way. So, all right, any other comments about Old Testament, Bill, before we move no, on? No, just, just to reiterate in a sense that I think many of us at times struggle with one line or another, but... And I don't know that you can ever make everybody happy. And so we just all have to kind of grow comfortable with the fact that there's always going to be limits to, to the box that we call Mormonism. And while we all want a, a, you know, those of us, I should say, who listen to this program, I think by and large want a bigger tent, we ought to recognize that we just can't get rid of the fabric of the tent altogether. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It's a very, very good point. It might be too small for what we'd like it to be. Um, but let's remember that we want a tent. That's what we're a part of. Yeah. Good. Uh, moving on to the New Testament, some of the, um, obviously not a, a mainstream or a unmainstream, I'm no sort of formal scholar, but as I understand it, uh, mainstream scholars of early Christian history, early Jesus followers, see kind of a, a wide variety of, of beliefs, of perspectives. Uh, they see kind of a doctrinal development that's forming after, soon after, uh, the Jewish peasant Jesus was on the earth and had taught and had uh, been crucified and his his followers testified of his resurrection. There was a process of developing doctrine and understanding who was Jesus, what was he about, and what does that mean for us. And we see a lot of uh, challenges in the New Testament and outside the New Testament with these early Jesus followers trying to understand what that means for them, trying to understand what that means for these little groups that were starting to 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 meet together, to have a maybe like a, a sacrament sort of service, to to maybe sing hymns, to maybe read from the Hebrew Bible, and to honor and venerate Jesus. What did they believe? What did they teach? We see kind of these doctrinal questions pop up with the epistles of Paul, certainly, he was very much engaged in these uh, questions about, for instance, the law of Moses for Jews and for Gentiles. Uh, where do we draw the line with following the law of Moses for early Christians? What are they going to do? 
Christianity started off, as I understand it, as a Jewish movement. Now, there were Gentiles that joined with Jews before Jesus, and there were Gentiles that joined Jews and with Jewish Christians after Jesus. But that was a fundamental question. What do we do with the Law of Moses? What do we do with the Hebrew Bible? How do we worship? Who are we worshiping? And we see doctrinal kind of evolution, so to speak, among the New Testament books and among the doctrines there. And certainly, if we look at kind of the wider view of the early Christian world, especially moving on past 100 AD, moving on to 150 and 200 CE, we see a wider variety of religious beliefs, these Ebionites and Marcionites and these different groups that may preach complete obedience to the law of Moses, or some that preach that Jesus's human life was merely an abstraction, merely a symbol, or some that taught about uh, kind of a dualistic nature to the universe. And Christians struggled with how to incorporate the proper teachings, how to develop the proper teachings, and how to exclude the ones that weren't correct. And again, going to the New Testament, something that our listeners may be more comfortable or familiar with, just looking in the topical guide under apostasy of the early Christian church, whether you uh, agree with that each passage directly relates to some sort of early Christian apostasy, certainly this points to divisions, differences, kind of a struggle to 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 differentiate and to establish kind of this Christian mindset. Now, a lot of the New Testament, of course, is not necessarily about separation. It's about growth. It's about building up the kingdom of God, bringing people into the fold. And so much of Acts is that way. Certainly some of the Gospels end teaching all nations. And so we see that strand there. Um, but, but again, we also see the, the early Christian movement, these early Jesus followers trying to come to terms with who Jesus was, how do we worship him, what does it mean to worship him, and again, there are going to be lines. There's going to be things that they say, this is what we do, this is what we don't do. And there were differences of opinion. Paul didn't agree with uh, Peter on every instance, for instance, and there were others that uh, had other disagreements. So again, New Testament, it's it's obviously not our day, and it's obviously not the Old Testament day, but we see similar kind of questions, a different context, but similar questions as to where is this line drawn? Who is going to be in this community? Who is going to be other or outside this community? And uh, we see that in, many of us are familiar with the New Testament books, and then there's other books too uh, that were considered other. Those are not acceptable, not canonical, not uh, reputable sources or whatever the case may be, the Gospel of Thomas or Philip, uh, you know, many other scriptures uh, books of scripture that we might consider apocryphal or heretical or whatever the case may be. Now, there were Christians, people that followed Jesus that listened to those and followed those. So I don't have anything particularly profound to say about the New Testament period, except that, again, these early Jesus followers are, are struggling with these questions, too. And they didn't have a clear-cut, obvious, easy answer, as I understand it, that they were kind of groping sometimes to try to find out what is the proper, correct doctrine, and, and where do we draw the line here? How do we keep our community together um, in, a, in, the, in the proper way while still building the kingdom of God? Those were, those were difficult challenges for the early Jesus followers, especially in the midst of persecution. I'm totally with you. You mentioned that the early saints of Christianity, the early members of the church, were trying to figure out who Jesus was. And, and I think to a large extent, we're still trying to figure that out. I, I know that 
for those of us, again, maybe, you know, pointing this to the listeners of the program who, who want this bigger tent, I think sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that Jesus is always preaching peace and love and, and happiness and joy. And, and when we make mistakes, he stands right there to forgive that very instant. And I think that that's true. I think that is part of who Jesus is. But I also think in a larger spec, and this speaks to what you're talking about, uh, Elder Holland quoted Harold B. Lee. Uh, he said that, President Lee had said that the gospel is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And I think we fall into this trap of thinking Jesus is this super nice guy, when in reality, he, there are times where he says, I cometh by the sword, or, or I come not to to bring family together, but to pit father against son and mother against daughter and brother against sister. And there are, there are numerous examples in the, in the New Testament of Jesus Christ pushing us outside our comfort zone where he almost talks about opposing messages and they're almost kind of butting heads with each other. And I think that's intentional. I think it is to make us somewhat uncomfortable. And I think if we take a step back and just realize that it's easy to sit back and say, okay, I'm going to throw out the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, God's mean and he just comes down with wrath. And to say, okay, I'm just going to stick with the New Testament. Well, to be honest, the New Testament's going to pose these same kinds of problems, maybe not to the same extent, but they're going to pose these same kind of paradoxes. And so maybe just that was kind of my thought as I was thinking about the New Testament scriptures that you'd shared. Wonderful point. Yeah, Jesus pushes us, he tests us, he tries us. Uh, he One of his parables, of course, we remember is uh, about the man that, uh, found uh, a pearl of great price and sold everything he could to get it, okay? That person had to sell everything they had, right? That pearl just wasn't for the taking. The man had to sacrifice to get it. And and Jesus told parables about the enemy that sowed tares with the wheat. And he warned about false prophets. He warned about false Christs. He called uh, Peter uh, Satan, meaning the adversary at one point. He, he told his disciples they were fools. They were uh, slow to believe. And so Jesus, I think, does challenge us just as he challenged uh, the early followers that he had. They loved him. He loved them. But he he challenged, he tested, he tried, and his gospel was a challenging gospel and is a challenging gospel. Maybe that's comforting to some of us if we struggle with things, realize, well, Jesus wants us to struggle, or at least he's okay with us struggling. That's part of our journey. That's part of our of our. Uh, being on the earth, trying to explore, trying to probe. God doesn't uh, shorten that journey for us just because we really want to. Some of us are on a long journey and uh, a journey full of struggles, and that that's part of life. And, and so Jesus does have this, I think you, you put it well, he challenges us. There's kind of this peaceful aspect to his ministry, absolutely. But there's also kind of a... a almost adversarial, almost combative in a sense, about separation, about um, using a sword, all of those things. I think those are those are apt themes to, to discuss, and I think it's important to remember that, that yes, God is a God of love, but uh, there needs to be something to love. There needs to be some reason for love. There needs to be something to love against. There needs to be some sort of opposite, kind of going back to the Book of Mormon theme about necessary opposition, and we see that in who Jesus was and how he taught and, and how he encourages us today. Yeah, and I just, I, I thought it was important to say that because as we move forward and begin to talk about church discipline today, 
we ought to recognize that there's going to be this same kind of push and pull and, and we may not always be comfortable with the way things happen or the way they go and perhaps some things aren't going to be done exactly the way God would do them. But to realize that this same tension exists uh, as we try to carry out uh, God's kingdom on earth. Yes, yes, I think that's a great point that, that we can expect that tension. And that's not necessarily a bad sign. That's not necessarily something that needs immediate resolution. Immediate resolution may, in fact, not be possible and may not be desirable in many cases. And as difficult as that is, uh, that's okay. In the long-term cosmic scheme, that's okay. And that's consistent. Let's move on to the Book of Mormon. I wanted to turn to Mosiah chapter 26. As I've thought about the Book of Mormon, which, again, deals with these questions of uh, who is in, who is out, what do we do with people. The Book of Mormon really deals with this with great clarity for us. What do we do with people that are part of a covenant community that stop doing things they should be doing? And where do we draw the line, and how do we help these people? So I think Mosiah 26 is a great precedent, and I think a lot of these principles are actually in use in the church today, in some in some instances anyway. Well, we remember a little bit, maybe, that King Benjamin gave a meaningful, a profound, a memorable speech. And not just a speech, uh, in a sense it was a coronation of his son. In another sense, it was a covenant-making opportunity for the Nephites that came to worship at the temple. So there were temple aspects to this kind of sermon. There were obviously teachings. There was a coronation aspect, and there was a covenant-making aspect to this. So it was a very kind of involved religious experience. Well, there were people who were part of this covenant that had changed their lives completely. Now, there were also children, we're told, that were part of this experience that didn't make these covenants. And so they didn't have that same experience. They didn't have that same level of commitment, perhaps. They start causing some problems for people that have made covenants. And we read about in Mosiah chapter 26 that some of these members of the church, so to speak, start transgressing in ways that are apparently pretty serious. They're brought before Alma, who is the high priest at this point, the kind of the leader of the church, you might think of. At least that's kind of our analog. And uh, Alma is very vexed. He's very concerned, very worried about what to do about these people. He's never faced this before. Chapter 26 indicates that Alma didn't really know much about this before these people were brought to him, but the evidence was so overwhelming that he couldn't deny that this was happening. Even though he didn't know about it beforehand, it was very obvious once the investigation was kind of brought to him that this was these were serious circumstances and these were serious allegations. So he, of course, goes to the Lord in prayer and receives this revelation, which I think is wonderful. And I, and I won't spend a lot of time on the, the, the part of Revelation that I think is the most wonderful to us individually. But the, the ending part of this is kind of the, the answer to his question about what to do with these people who are members of this covenant community and yet are transgressing to the point where it's really causing some serious problems in a, in a public way or in a very grievous way. And so the Lord's response to Alma in verse 28 of Mosiah chapter 26 is, He that will not hear my voice, the same shall you not receive into my church. For him I will not receive at the last day. Therefore I say unto you, Go, and whosoever transgresseth against me, him shall you judge according to the sins which he has committed. And if he confess his sins before thee and me, and repenteth in the sincerity of his heart, him shall ye forgive, and I will forgive him also. Yea, and as often as my people repent, will I forgive them their trespasses against me. So he continues to go on here. He that forgiveth not his neighbor's trespasses when he says that he repents, the same hath brought himself under condemnation. So there's this responsibility not only for 
people to uh, repent of their sins, but also other people to forgive them, for people in the covenant community to forgive each other. And then the, kind of the closing uh, instruction here or challenge to, to Alma is the Lord tells him, Go, whosoever will not repent of his sins, the same shall not be numbered among my people. This shall be observed from this time forward. Kind of indicating this isn't just a one-time thing. This is policy. This is what you should do going forward. That there's this connection with this willingness. That if oh, someone is willing and will repent, then they can be part of this covenant community. Those who will not repent are not allowed, are not numbered with this group. And so this is kind of one of the defining characteristics here among the Nephites. Those that will repent are part of the group. Those that will not are not permitted to be part of that community. And so as I read this, as I thought about this, and as I've thought about my experiences, my limited, very limited experiences with church discipline, I've thought that these principles very much apply, that it's very much a willingness sort of thing. In in many cases, not all, I would presume, but in many cases it's a for for the Lord's servants that understand that members of the church are willing to follow him, then then they're part of that covenant community. Those that display an unwillingness to a certain degree are are in a sense put outside that covenant community. Shall not in the words of verse thirty two, shall not be numbered among my people. And so I think the church has kind of utilized some of these principles uh, today. So I, I find it interesting, Chris, that as we look through, and again, this is this goes back to all scripture that we've talked about so far, but perhaps somewhat pointed in the Book of Mormon, we have examples at times where there'll be more than one leader present, and uh, and I'm thinking of uh, uh, Alma or Ammon on missions, and, and one will prefer to handle a situation one way, and the other will prefer to handle a different way. And I think as I look at scriptures and we're talking about the need that there has to be lines, the idea that uh, that we may not always agree with those lines, I think we just have to come to grips that even from leader to leader, the lines aren't going to be the same. That it's this is a this is an earthly institution that, despite being led by God and being authorized by Him, still involves mortal men and women carrying out uh, the procedures and policies of the church. And so there's always going to be differences. If you go from one ward, you might be able to get away with uh, behavior X, Y, Z, and you go to another ward and that bishop or branch president thinks that that's, that's just too, too far over the line. And so I, I, as I look at scriptures, I just become more comfortable with realizing that even from prophet to prophet or leader to leader, there's going to be different emphases and uh, in different perspectives, different points of view, and at the end of the day, even a different judgment. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. Um, e- even in the voice in the Book of Mormon, uh, for instance, if we read, uh, going back to Mosiah 26, Verses 35 and 36. This is presumably the word, you know, the voice of Mormon here, who is editing uh, this. Whosoever repented of their sins and did confess them, them he did number among the people of the church. Those that would not confess their sins and repent of their iniquity, the same were not numbered among the people of the church, and their names were blotted out. And uh, as Mormon says that, it makes it seem like it's so cut and dry, so simple, that people either repented and confessed, and they were in the church, or they didn't, and they were out. Now, as members of the church, us personally and, and other members of our communities and our wards and branches and stakes, etc., we understand that people struggle with things, that repentance isn't a one-time thing, and uh, we're not perfect after we repent. And so Mormon uh, almost takes a little bit of the nuance and the subtlety out of the process that was probably there and, and makes it a little bit more simple, a little more cut and dry maybe, maybe a little more black and white, 
you know, you can kind of maybe look at these passages and kind of see Mormon reading some things in there and interpreting history in a way that, that he feels he needs to to comport to the narrative he's telling uh, about Jesus, about his church, about following him. But for us, sometimes we read these passages and we get confused because it's a little more subtle, it's a little more nuanced. As you say, different people can interpret things differently, can judge differently, um, can have different priorities. And, and so that's, that's a challenge because when we read the scriptures, sometimes we think this is the word of God and therefore this will be carried out no matter who's doing it exactly the same because that's how God wants it done and it's his church. Well, again, we think differently. We, we speak differently. We have different experiences. We have different backgrounds. We have different strengths. We have different weaknesses. Eugene England had this, this beautiful paragraph in his uh, famous essay about the the church is as true as the gospel, and he talks about how, yes, we talk about the gospel being perfect, but we forget that who receives the gospel and who's preaching the gospel, it's mortal people that, A, have to receive it in a certain way, and they're mortal, so they're not going to receive it perfectly. B, they have to comprehend it in a certain way. Okay, they're mortal, they're not going to comprehend it perfectly. Then they have to, to kind of internalize it, think about it, digest it, and then they have to teach it, and, and they're not going to teach it perfectly, and that has to be received by someone else. It's not going to be received perfectly. So you've got about four or five steps at least, and you've got mortality touching each one of those. And uh, so when we think about the gospel, we think about the church, I think it is instructive and useful to remember that mortality is, is part of our existence, and it touches everything. And so uh, we can feel God's influence in our lives. We can feel great spiritual power. We can feel great blessings in our lives. But we don't feel them in the same way. We don't feel them in the same time. People don't react to them and understand them in the same way. Some people have a powerful spiritual experience and they say, I know such and such. Some of people have a powerful spiritual experience and say, this makes me feel really good inside. Some people have a powerful spiritual experience. They're not really sure what it means. And that's okay. It's okay that we have different interpretations. There's not one interpretation that we're all supposed to just adopt and conform to. So I think it's useful to understand the nuance that and, and to try to use our spiritual eyes, as Adam Miller encourages us to kind of translate the scriptures according to our understanding, according to what God has given us, and understand that there's there's some nuance, there's some subtlety, there's some expansions that we can do to understand what's going on. Yeah, and I and I want to maybe just throw out there maybe just a little bit of a, a pushback in in that you had written in this outline that we're that we're discussing. You bring up this question. You say, "Is the Book of Mormon a possible cautionary tale about accepting permissiveness, tolerating sin too much?" And and I think it is. But my concern would be is that at times kind of seeing things in a black and white way, we we kind of create within our culture uh, a stubbornness to inclusiveness that uh, we sometimes put off getting to know others because they're different from us or we'll see us as righteous and them as sinful or our behavior as acceptable because we're following what we believe the church has laid out as the the clear way uh, of the path. And yet anybody who's different from that will tend to be less tolerant of them. And I, I think this, again, as we're talking about this constant effort to have balance and to walk a fine line, I think there's a a possibility of seeing the Book of Mormon as permission to take a black and white line of thinking and say, hey, we're righteous and they're unrighteous. I'm in the church safely and that person obviously then is not. And and maybe take that further than what uh, what God would have us do. Yeah, you know, there's kind of a temptation, for instance, to say, 
well, the Nephites were righteous, the Lamanites were wicked. Well, we understand that's not the case. Um, I think it's the end of book, the book of Enos. I think Enos tells all the things he has to do to help the Nephites kind of keep it together. And we read about other problems the Nephites have. And then when we start glimpsing the Lamanites, we read about uh, Lamoni and his wife. And we see a, a window into a wonderful relationship, a beautiful relationship that they have. And we see Abish, a wonderful example of faith in a Lamanite woman. And we see King Lamoni's father and, and his wife, again, have a good relationship. But that's what it looks like to us anyway. And so we see kind of there are... These maybe prejudices that come out a little bit in the Book of Mormon. We see a curse. We see some uh, Jacob talking about the Lamanites being idle and having all these problems. Uh, But then when we actually go to the Lamanites and and we kind of see what sort of people they are and how they live their lives, in a sense that black and white view is challenged. We have to kind of confront that that prejudice, that simplistic perspective. And, and further down the road in the book of Helaman, for instance, with Samuel the Lamanite and with that wonderful chapter in Helaman chapter 5. Again, we're confronted with this. Nephites were good. Lamanites were bad. We're confronted with that. And we kind of have to deal with it and realize it's not that simple. It's definitely not that simple. And, and so there, there, there are ways to see things in a very black and white way that are not accurate. And, you know, we want to have a simple understanding of things. We want to see things in a simple way. We want to feel like we can understand everything. We can really wrap our minds around everything. And sometimes that puts us in positions that we end up wishing we weren't in. I did want to go fast forward to after Jesus came and kind of the, the, the beginning of the decline of the Nephites. In verse 27 of chapter 1 in 4th Nephi, we read there are many churches which profess to know the Christ, and yet they did deny them more parts of his gospel, insomuch that they did receive all manner of wickedness, and did administer that which was sacred unto him to whom it had been forbidden because of unworthiness. Now there were certainly other problems with this Nephite Lamanite church. We read about in verse 26 about dividing into classes. We read about costly apparel in verse 24 and pride. But verse 27 is potentially uh, a concerning thing. You know, we've talked about where do we draw that line? Where does a community draw that line? And, and in verse 27, it looks like the line is kind of getting drawn further and further away. Okay, now we're starting to allow people to make covenants that previously weren't allowed to make covenants because we didn't consider that they were in a position that they were able to do that. Wicked, were unworthy, however we want to define that. Again, we were kind of confronted with the question, where do we draw that line? At what point is the tent so big that it's not uh, significant anymore? that we're not really sheltering, we can't really be a refuge, we can't really have that spiritual power because, you know, we're just kind of stretching it to almost to a breaking point. So, again, we have to kind of confront and deal with that question at some point. If we have a sacred community, where is that line drawn? Are we going to eliminate the lines altogether? Well, what's the point of a sacred community? Okay, well, where are the lines going to be drawn? And as you pointed out about our mortal perspectives and understandings, we may all have different places that we'd like that line to be drawn. And that's okay. It's okay to have a different perspective. So I just wanted to point that out in 4th Nephi chapter 1, uh, verse 27 there about kind of this expansive view. And uh, so, so when I was talking about the Book of Mormon potentially being a cautionary tale, this is kind of what I was referring to, that this is kind of an ominous sign. They're kind of losing the integrity of this covenant community now by expanding it much further than it should have gone. And so the people that are in this community, uh, it, the community just means something different than it did before. Uh, verse 28 continues, the church did multiply exceedingly because of iniquity and because the power of Satan did get hold upon their hearts. It's not, again, it's not to say that if 
our view expands a little bit, or the tent gets a little bigger, that that's Satan. That, that's not the point. But the point is, there is a way to make that tent too big, and that's a problem. I just kind of wanted to, to cover that. It's not a comfortable thing for us that the tent can get too big, uh, but I think it's an important point to at least grapple with a little bit. No, no, I totally agree, and uh, I think we're we're really kind of diving into this idea that that each of us are not going to be completely satisfied with the way that every single event in our our personal journey within the church occurs, but that that's that in a sense is the way it's designed to be, and, and that doesn't that doesn't mean for those who are perhaps hurt or or feel cheated in some way. Or feel that something happened in a way that was unchristlike, that, hey, you know, sorry about your luck, that's just the way it's supposed to be. But rather that, uh, again, in an, in a, in an earthly institution, regardless of who's leading it, that we're gonna have to deal with the failings of man. And, and I just think we have to come to grips with that. I, I wonder, Chris, if you might take us into maybe a little more uh, present time and start maybe opening up our eyes to some things that have happened in what we would call our modern history and and take us maybe into some of the things within church history. Absolutely. Be glad to. I think that's the next kind of step in our journey. We've started with Old Testament idea of a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, covenant community, and and where do we draw the line? Where is this community defined? Uh, you know, the figurative boundary of the tent or the tabernacle or the temple, however we want to define that. We talked a little bit about the New Testament community trying to grapple with this and doctrinal issues and community issues and other things. And then the Book of Mormon also trying to deal with these issues. We're all different. We make mistakes. And and yet we want this sacred community. And, and how do we maintain that? What is it composed of? What are its boundaries? All those things are very important. And in our dispensation, the time of Joseph Smith, soon after uh, the church was restored, uh, there were issues with people that left the church. Joseph Smith, I think, struggled for much of his life with the idea that he had close friends that abandoned him, that became uh, sometimes violent enemies. And I think he really struggled to to come to grips with this. It was very difficult for him personally, and I think it made a huge impact on the church. As an example, we can see Doctrine and Covenants section 102, which is interesting, as uh, as I understand it, a lot of those principles are followed today. Section 102 kind of sets up the first high council of the church. And so the high council was one of the main, the key governing bodies uh, of this early church. Actually, the what we call now the 12 apostles were sometimes called the traveling high council in the early days of the church. And so the church in Ohio or the church in Missouri would have a high council. The church in Nauvoo was the same. And so the high council, section 102, talks about difficult issues coming before the high council and them having to grapple with them, wrestle with them, etc. And and many of these were related to what would ultimately become kind of disciplinary issues. There's some dispute, there's some challenge, there's some accusation. How do we process it? What are we going to do about it? What was the determination of the council? It's a very interesting section. Uh, verse 17 talks about that for this high council that those that draw, there's kind of a people pick uh, straws or draw numbers, and those that pick the certain numbers speak in behalf of, of the accused to prevent insult and injustice. And so the others, in a sense, kind of speak um, on the other side. And so we see kind of this high council starting to form in section 102. And and this was certainly an impactful uh, section and procedure. And in the 1830s was used, unfortunately, uh, with some regularity. 
especially in the 1837-1838 time frame, there were a number of uh, members of the church that had significant positions, visible positions of leadership, uh, a lot of kind of messy controversy, personal issues, um, uh, really crises of faith, people that had testimonies of Joseph Smith but saw things they were really uncomfortable with, or uh, people that may have felt they were wronged, and uh, in, sometimes in painful ways. And so there's a number of these individuals, uh, William W. Phelps, Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, John Whitmer, Lyman Johnson, Thomas Marsh, Orson Hyde, Frederick G. Williams, Alman Babbitt's another one, um, maybe not exactly on that time frame, but there's certainly a, he had a, a number of run-ins with church disciplinary issues. And uh, Orson Pratt also had uh, some serious situations in 1840s. Uh, so there's a number of these situations early, early in church history when the church is really kind of struggling, almost on the ropes. And yet the church is struggling with who's in the community and who's not in the community. And, and it was important to Joseph to, to define that and presumably to the Lord as well to define that clearly. Who's in and, and who's out? Who can be part of this community? And at what, at what point is that person um, disciplined? At what point is that person not even allowed to be part of the community anymore? And so there are a number of very painful, very uncomfortable things. Um, you know, there, there are some good resources on the church history website about Thomas Marsh and some of the other individuals um, that are, are very in- interesting. These are uncomfortable things to look at up close. Um, they're pretty complicated, and we don't have the full story. Um, but one of the kind of encouraging things to take away from this, if we can say that, is that uh, we see kind of two kind of responses. We see people like um, William Law, for instance, who was in the first presidency, or uh, David Whitmer to, to some extent, who left the church and really became opposed to it afterwards. And we also see people like William W. Phelps or Oliver Cowdery or Frederick G. Williams that left the church, but then after a period of time, sometimes it was a long period of time, sometimes it was a shorter period of time, they sought to come back. And they made that journey, and they made every step of it. And they came back to the church and were received into full fellowship. Whatever it took for them to do, they did it. And then I go back to that Mosiah chapter 26 principle. Were they willing to do that? And they were. They were willing to do those things. And so there's embedded in these stories of maybe tragedy or discomfort or historical messiness or, or however we want to think of it. There's some wonderful, hopeful, redemptive tales in there as well which to me are really the heart of the gospel, about salvation of souls, about people, uh, God putting their lives back together through the atonement of Christ. And we see that with some of these individuals. We see kind of uh, the ugliness of what we might say as church discipline, but we also see some positive results, maybe long-term, but some positive results from some of these individuals. Yeah, and I I think it's, it's the same point you're making, which, you know, some of these people in the moment of being disfellowshipped or excommunicated, they were angry and felt like they were treated wrongly. And yet we find them perhaps a few months later, maybe a year later, where they want nothing more than to be back in the church and are doing all that they can to get themselves either rebaptized or, or readmitted uh, if disfellowshipped. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's encouraging to see, uh, we don't know these people personally, but we can read about their histories and their experiences. We can empathize or at least sympathize with the feelings that they had that led them to separate themselves from the saints. But we can also be touched by how they came back and how they uh, were accepted back 
And uh, of course, we all know the you know the wonderful letter that W. W. Phelps wrote to Joseph Smith, and Joseph Smith's wonderful response back uh, about uh, friends at first or friends again at last. And uh, it's just a wonderful uh, story and a and a great ending to for W. W. Phelps anyway for a, a dark chapter in his life that uh, had consequences, had some serious consequences. But in the end, for him, and and maybe in the end for the church, um, ended up on a high note. Right. And I probably should at least mention here, and it's playing on the same idea that you have these, these members. Again, they're each individual, their, their case is pretty messy. And it would be, I think, of worth for any member who loves church history and wants to, to delve into these deeper things. There's plenty of information out there. And, and sometimes the critical sources of these experiences will paint Joseph Smith as this this bad guy who's, who's essentially, you know, using unrighteous dominion at times. And, and so these folks end up outside the church. But what I find amazing almost to a T is that with any one of them, if there's any desire on their part to come back, Joseph seems to be standing at the very front of the line, ready to forgive, ready to let bygones be bygones and to welcome him back with open arms. And I see today, and we're going to talk about this obviously in a moment, but I see today in our discipline procedure that there is often a, a larger time period between the discipline and the uh, readmittance or allowing someone back into full fellowship. Yet we look back at church history and Joseph might, might, you know, disfellowship you one day and then a week later in the high council meeting of the church he is begging to have you readmitted i just i think his his forgiveness and ability to look past things and to realize that all of us have weaknesses i think it's a, a facet of his life that goes all too often unmentioned yeah and that's a great point he uh he was a person that had strong emotions on both ends of the spectrum he was hurt he was sensitive in many ways but he was able to forgive. He was able to reach back and to, to, to reach out with open arms and the full hand of fellowship. And that's a great point. And, and it's a great example for us. He, in a sense, had the most to lose and was hurt the most from these instances. And yet he was leading the charge about bringing these people back. And, uh, again, uh, someone listening to this can say, well, what about the women here? We're just talking about men. And I, and I wish I had a little bit more uh, women's history to share on this end. Um, but hopefully these these lessons can apply to we can we can put these principles uh, plug them into both genders. Right. Yeah. Do you want to do you want to talk about uh, discipline procedures today? Sure. I'll be glad to talk about them. Uh, there was a talk given by Elder Ballard. It's actually on the church website. You can read it. Uh, September 1990. Ensign. Um, it's called a chance to start over. Church disciplinary councils and the restoration of blessings. And so a lot of the things I'm going to talk about are right in this article. That anyone can look at uh, in the end sign, September 1990, a chance to start over from Elder Ballard. And in this article, he talks about some of these principles uh, about uh, church discipline. And he shares some re- really good stories about people coming back. Um, he gives some fairly pointed uh, direction and instruction about when church discipline councils are held. Uh, but let me let me just talk a little bit about some a brief overview. There are really three purposes. One is to save the soul of the sinner, the transgressor. One is to protect the innocent. And one is to safeguard the good name of the church, or the church's purity, the church's integrity. So those are really the three purposes of what we call, uh, or what we may refer to as church discipline. And, and I want to say there, Chris, I think it's in that order. I, I feel like 
you know, you and I both served in a bishopric, and, and maybe we can talk about that at some point here too, but uh, in doing disciplinary councils, but I felt like the number one purpose was to save the sinner, and that, that should have been at the forefront of any leader's uh, mind as he is considering or holding uh, a disciplinary council. And, and then that second one, which is to protect the innocent, which I think is right there with it. And obviously, specifically, if we're talking about uh, abuse issues with children or women, uh, issues where somebody is essentially using unrighteous dominion to damage another, I, I think that that absolutely has a huge precedent. And then maybe kind of off in the distance a little bit, is this third idea of protecting the church. And again, not to lessen that as one of the three purposes. I think it absolutely is is one of those three and, is, and has value uh, for, simply on its own. But that sometimes these may slightly be in conflict with each other. And in my mind anyway, I, I always tried to, to exercise some level of leniency if if in my mind it's like, hey, this is going to benefit this person, there's a chance of, of them holding on and staying within the church. And uh, I, I hope that maybe we see the idea of saving uh, the members of the church and getting them back to our Father in Heaven, perhaps, and again, I could be way off base, but holding perhaps a little more value than the name of the church, which I still think is a, is a valuable point as well. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, the church exists not just as an institution with a name. It, it exists as a place to save souls. That's the, the function and purpose of the church, the purpose of the gospel. And so certainly that would be the forefront of the purposes of church discipline. Um, great. Now, probably the most common way church discipline is imposed is when a member will approach the bishop with some sort of challenge or transgression or some other issue. And through counseling with the bishop, the bishop may impose certain conditions on them. And this is, the church really tries very hard to keep this confidential. And in bishoprics I've served at, the bishops I've worked with are work very hard to not even let me know who they're really meeting with and what the purpose of those meetings are, as a counselor I'm referring to. So the church really works hard to keep this as confidential as possible so that when that member walks in with the bishop, that there is a relationship of trust, and that trust is not broken. It's very damaging if something confidential uh, gets spread out beyond what the person who's approaching the bishop is comfortable with. Um, that's a serious, serious issue. Uh, very damaging, very harmful to healing, very harmful um, for a lot of reasons. So I think there's, there's, there's a good message there that the church really tries to keep things confidential as much as possible. And so when the bishop counsels with this individual is prompted by the Holy Ghost and to the, the bishop's best ability. And, and I really do believe that God amplifies and strengthens and helps each bishop, the ones that I've worked with, the ones I know, uh, from all levels, uh, really tries to magnify them. And so it's not just Bill Real meeting with someone, it's Bishop Real meeting with someone who's guided by some sort of spiritual mantle, spiritual power. Uh, in those counseling capacities. And so uh, the, really the attempt again, the effort is to save, to do everything we can to bring more blight, more blessings, more gospel fullness into that person's life, to, to live a spiritually healthier life, uh, to be more spiritually self-reliant, and to feel more uh, closeness and spiritual power, closeness to the divine and more spiritual power in their life. So informal probation is perhaps one of the most common ways that church discipline is really imposed. And the bishop will just impose, may impose certain restrictions about uh, taking the sacrament, for instance, 
or about speaking in church, for instance, or maybe there's some other conditions imposed. Read this book or, you know, read these scriptures and come back to me every week or whatever the case may be. The bishop has some leniency there. Again, the purpose is to help that person on a one-on-one situation. And again, confidentiality is very, very important. Now, for certain circumstances, then there will be a disciplinary council held uh, for uh, ironic priesthood holders and for sisters. And again, this is kind of a, you know, you take a feminist perspective on this, and that's all I'm going to say about it. I don't really have any comment about that. But the, the bishopric will typically have some sort of uh, council, a disciplinary council for, again, sisters and for ironic priesthood holders, for Melchizedek priesthood holders, where, especially where the case may lead to excommunication, then the stake president and the stake presidency and the high council will meet uh, in those cases. And the bishopric really is not to hold a church disciplinary council unless they have the approval, the stated approval of the stake president um, to proceed and that authorization to proceed. So as I understand it, in my, my experience is, the procedure is that once there's a determination to hold a disciplinary council, then there's a letter that's kind of formally sent, delivered to the attendee, to the invitee, by a member of the bishopric, presumably the bishop, and uh, another priesthood holder, presumably a member of the bishopric, inviting them to that disciplinary council, or in the case of a stake one, it would be two stake officers, I presume, um, on such and such a date, such and such a time, etc., etc. So there's kind of a formal invitation to that disciplinary council. Um, on the day of the council, before the person is brought in, the bishopric will meet together, or the high council and stake presidency will meet together, they'll pray, they will have some limited discussion about the matter, and then the individual is brought in. There's some questioning, some discussion about the particulars, the circumstances. Uh, in the case of a bishopric and the disciplinary councils that I've been in, there's some flexibility with uh, you know, how the questions are discussed and who gets to discuss what, when. It's kind of a free-flowing discussion as, I, as I've experienced it. Again, Section 102 in the Doctrine and Covenants talks about the High Council. There's a little bit more of a, a formal procedure there where half of the High Council speaks up in behalf of the accused. The other half you know, is, is kind of representing the, the prosecution in a sense. But there's this question, this deliberation, this discussion. Um, once there's kind of a, a point that is reached in that, then the individual is dismissed. There's some group deliberation, some prayer, and the, the effort and the goal is to have a decision not that the bishop or the stake president agrees with, but that every member of the council is unanimous in. And that's been my experience, that the presiding officer, the bishop or the stake president, doesn't move forward with the decision until he feels very confident that everyone in that room is on the same page and that there are no concerns, no hesitations, that everyone is on the same page about the decision to be made. And the individual is brought back in and uh, told the decision of the council. There are some conditions imposed. There are some things that the person's encouraged to do, perhaps um, read their scriptures, come to church, things like that. Now, the, the consequences for church disciplinary council, one is no decision. The church disciplinary council may decide that there is, they're not going to take any action. Um, another possibility is to reconvene, to seek some additional information or additional time to process the, the information they received before they're able to make a decision. Another possible consequence is a formal probation. So that's kind of like the bishop's informal probation, except it's uh, with a, a actual disciplinary council environment. So it's going to be uh, formally documented at some level, and then there's going to be some conditions imposed on the person for a period of time. And that can vary. Several months is not unusual, I think. Several years for formal probation would be pretty unusual. 
Um, and then kind of the, the next step up, so to speak, is disfellowshipping. Um, and then the, the last step is excommunication, basically removing that person from the membership in the church. Disfellowshipping is uh, someone still a member of the church, but they're severely limited and, and restricted in uh, terms of callings, in terms of participation in church, etc., etc. Um, excommunicated members aren't even allowed to pay tithing directly. Um, they may through a family member, or a spouse, or a friend, uh, but they're not allowed to pay it directly. Um, they're not to, to wear their garments. They're not to speak in church. So excommunication is really kind of the, the final the final and the, the really the most severe punishment. So those are really the the five possible consequences um, from a disciplinary council. But again, as, as I've been involved in these disciplinary councils, and I'm not an expert, but just from my very limited experience, let me just emphasize what Bill has mentioned, that there is a spirit there about saving and helping the person that is in that room. And that, that really is the thrust and the goal. Um, and in Bishop Ricks, I've been at where it doesn't seem like convening a disciplinary council will help the person, then that in many cases is not held and not convened. Uh, again, I'm not speaking for the church, obviously. I'm speaking for my, a very limited experience, but that's that's my experience. Yeah, and, and I just want to throw out there, there's this phrase that we, we have when we talk about disciplinary councils, and we call them a court of love that's been referred to as that. And I, I know that in my outreach to, to individuals who are struggling, some of them really have a hard time with that phrase because their their experience in a disciplinary council has been, for whatever reason, it, it fell short of what they were were hoping was going to be, you know, their perception of what the Christ-like behavior that would happen in those courts, of, in those uh, disciplinary councils. But I, I want to say that I think far and wide in the church, and again, just like you're saying, Chris, I'm not, you know, I served as a bishop. Uh, you serve as a counselor in my bishopric, so we can speak to our experience. I don't know what experience is across the church, but I feel like having known many of the bishops that serve in my stake, I think far and wide the the behavior the the mode of operandi when they're when they're doing these disciplinary councils is on the up and up that these things are done with love and i know that you and i can speak to the ones that we were part of i felt like we were united in those councils that our our desires were absolutely to to help to love to bring back that person who was struggling and i don't feel like in any way there was any kind of judgment or oh, you know shame on them for doing this but rather i felt like it was an absolute spirit of love and in christ like care and concern for that person and again for the leaders i am aware of for the you know the stake presidents that i know the 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 other bishops and branch presidents in our stake i think far and far and wide across the church bishops are are good men and uh, they're trying to do the best they can with with these situations, and I think first and foremost is their concern and love for the person who's struggling. And again, that doesn't diminish the fact that I'm sure bad experiences happen. Um, I don't think that in a a church that utilizes human beings that there isn't going to be a bad apple once in a while. But I think we hear horror stories and we assume that that's the norm, and I just I don't think that's the case. I think far and wide, bishops are good men trying to do their very best trying to to pray and seek out the Holy Spirit to help these people uh, to come unto Christ. Thanks, Bill. Uh, good good thoughts there. So I, I wanted to kind of move into, um, didn't really want to spend a lot of time talking about higher profile church disciplinary instances. You know, there have been some in the, in the news that have been pretty high profile. I, I really wanted to focus more on ground level. Again, a spirit of love and certainly a spirit of confidentiality. But in many of our wards and branches, there are members that are under some sort of discipline. 
and they are, in a sense, excluded. They are Miriam the leper outside. And so the question then becomes, what about us? How are we going to help them? What is our relationship to them? The church has responded by doing something that separates them from the church, so to speak. What are we going to do about that? How are we going to act? How are we going to behave? I think that is a very salient and important question. Um, and again, in a spirit of love, and a spirit of confidentiality, there are people in our congregations that are under church discipline. Again, it may be informal, maybe some sort of formal church discipline. How can we help them? And I just had a few thoughts I'd really like to share. One, going back to Numbers chapter 12. Again, I really love the attitude of Aaron and the attitude of Moses, where Aaron is pleading for his sister, lay not the sin upon us. Let her, my sister Miriam, not be as one dead. And Moses praying to the Lord on behalf of her, heal her now, I beseech thee. So can we pray for people in our congregation, whether we know about them or not, that may be under church discipline, that may be struggling? We can certainly pray for them. We can certainly pray for them. We can certainly do what we can to be on their side. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 15, very simple, but the people stayed with Miriam. They didn't leave until she was back with them. Even though she was shut out from the camp for seven days, they stayed with her. And I think that's a powerful message, that we can stay with, we can be with, we can support, however we can, people that are struggling, including those that may have church disciplinary account, church discipline imposed upon them, some sort of conditions of discipline imposed upon them. Again, the spirit of love, and certainly, and we emphasize, a spirit of confidentiality. It's extremely important. We want to help people save face. So asking a 14-year-old, why didn't you pass the sacrament today? Probably not a great idea. You know, asking someone, why didn't you want to say a prayer in class today? Probably not a good idea. Talking about something else might be a much, much better idea. We understand what it means to feel uncomfortable, to feel other, and these people have already felt that. They don't need to feel that from us. They need to feel loved. They need to feel accepted. They need to be brought back in, and we can do that. We can do that ministering work. We can be that welcoming back person. We can help help this person, whoever it is by being a friend, by being someone to talk to, by just being there, maybe. I love the powerful, powerful idea of a ministry of presence, that just by being there for someone, it can be so meaningful and so significant. I think each one of us, in various ways in our lives, have had a problem, a challenge, an issue, and uh, someone comes up to us, and they may not have any clue how to fix it. But the fact that they care, and that they express interest in us, and they express their availability to help us, is extremely profound and extremely meaningful. And I would suggest that's something that each one of us can do. Each one of us can strive to stay with those that struggle, including those that may be struggling with church discipline. We can reach out to them in love. We can try everything we can to help them feel comfortable, to save face. If we see, for instance... A teacher approaching someone or about to ask someone a question and we know well or have a really good idea that person does not feel comfortable speaking, let's volunteer. Let's save that person the headache and the discomfort of having to turn down an opportunity to pray or to answer a question or read a scripture. Let's do that. We can do that. We can we can intercede on their behalf in a very simple way and in a way that they may not even realize we're doing, uh, but in a way that can help them. So I'd really encourage us to be loving, to be prayerful, take something away from this discussion where we can be uh, a more loving, understanding, kind, compassionate person to those in our congregations that 
are struggling to come back, however, wherever they are on that path. I think that as I think about disciplinary councils in general, that as you're pointing out, I mean, most, I think most people who go into a disciplinary council are scared to death of, especially if it's their first time, if they're scared to death of what that even involves. And we, we hear this word discipline and we think, you know, you know, we think the worst. I remember going to the temple for the first time and some of the things that I had been taught just generally that happened in the temple. And I took the absolute worst possible interpretation of some of the things I was, I was prepared for. And when I got there, I was surprised that things were not the way I had pictured them in my mind. And I think disciplinary councils are the same way. We sometimes fear going in that there's going to be, you know, these three, three, these three priesthood holders who are going to simply shame me because of what I've done wrong. And, and again, I can only speak to my own experience. And, and again, you've shared that with, with me. We've shared in those, but I don't think that's the case 99% of the time. I, I think, you know, this person shouldn't be afraid because one, the three people in that room, their desire should be for that person to get back on the path that leads to Christ and a desire to help them emulate Christ-like behaviors and, and to put off those things that, that we would call sin and, and realizing that we all have weaknesses. I remember several times in, in many of these disciplinary councils before the person came in, my thought was, you know, I've got my own things that I struggle with. I've got my own problems and things I've done in my life that, that I wish I hadn't, hadn't done. The last thing I want to do is shame somebody because they've, they've made a mistake no different than some of the mistakes that I've made that I've had to go in and, and talk to good bishops about. And so I just, I hope that as people listen to this podcast, and we talk about disciplinary councils. We talk about there needing to be lines. We talk about uh, the God of the Old Testament and Christ in the New Testament and how even even within Scripture, there are consequences for sinful behavior. And, and even though we acknowledge that there probably are times where a leader doesn't handle those disciplinary councils appropriately, again, far and wide, these are done out of love. And, and I think we don't need to be afraid to go in um, I know having served as a bishop, my outlook is completely different. If I ever make a serious mistake in my life that needs that needs that kind of repentance and I need to go talk to a bishop, I, I don't fear that at all. I, I would I would welcome that opportunity to evaluate where I'm at and to change. You've also talked a little bit about members who who have come back when we talked about some of the church leaders. And I know you wanted to share one story in particular that is more modern day, and we'll get to that in a moment. But I think in their cases, those early church leaders, as well as in the case, I think you're going to finish off talking about, there's this, this whole understanding that at the end of the journey, when someone has been readmitted, many times these early church leaders looked back in, in, being excommunicated, there may be a hard feeling or two, but overall they see this as a as a positive thing. They've they've made steps to get back to where they need to be. And I think often that's the case. In the disciplinary councils that you and I have been a part of, I can think in my mind of the majority of individuals were grateful for uh for their you know, working their way through the repentance process and coming back and they were in tears, but to a T Almost every single one of them, it was tears of joy and, and they expressed as much in their words. And so I, I just want to maybe just caution people who worry about disciplinary councils being this, this hard thing where it's about punishment and shame that perhaps we open our eyes and just see that process differently. Yeah. Thanks, Bill. Uh, again, my experience has been uh, with you and, and in my current bishopric that, um, disciplinary councils I've been involved in with rare exception. 
certainly I felt an influence of the Holy Ghost in the proceedings. And almost without exception, the person that we are meeting with feels the same spirit, the same spirit of love, of compassion, the same kind of call home, so to speak, that, that pull to, to, to reach their divine heritage, to, to fulfill that potential, that, that, that love that maybe it's been a long time since they've felt. And that is, for me, really the ultimate goal, certainly of church discipline, but also of the church, that uh, we feel loved, we feel that we belong, and we find that place where we do belong. And so for all our discussions really are about drawing lines and about places so that, you know, there has to be a, a way to, to separate some things, and we may have difficulty understanding that. For all our mortal imperfections and frailties, there is a spiritual power in the gospel. There is a spiritual power and guidance in the church including in disciplinary councils, uh, that is available to uh, those that participate. I also wanted to to mention that as we reach out to those that uh, may have church discipline imposed on them, um, I think it's also good to remember that serving in a disciplinary council uh, can also be a challenging situation. And so we should have strive to have some sort of patience and love to those they have to sit in those councils and uh, struggle with situations that they may not be comfortable with or familiar with, but they see a soul struggling, and they feel a need to do something, and they uh, try to do the best they can to do that. And thank goodness I don't have to sit in many disciplinary councils, and I'm, I'm very glad about that. Um, but I think we can strive to be patient and understanding towards everyone involved in disciplinary councils, including priesthood leaders that sit in on disciplinary councils. We can try to have sympathy or even empathy for them. In closing, let me share my thoughts that, again, this is a gospel of, of love and of redemption and of reconciliation. Yes, separation is part of our life and it's part of our spiritual journey. But so is reconciliation and so is love and so is unification. And there are many examples in the church uh, of this. We've talked about some of them before. And uh, Maxine Hanks, I think, is an example that's really touched me quite a bit. She gave this presentation to Sunstone a couple of years ago where she talked in some detail about her experience. And uh, it was relatively soon after she joined the church again. And that's just a wonderful presentation to listen to. Hearing some of her interviews um, recent interviews in Mormon Matters, you really get a sense for the place that she's at now and the spirit working in her and the, the kind of person she is. And, and it's just a wonderful thing to, 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 uh, to witness. And uh, I suppose one, one fruit or result or one indication of that was this experience she shared um, right before she uh, was, was baptized in 2012. And she talked about how this experience was positive at almost every interview and almost the whole thing. And she said that she needed to come back and experience the positive because before she left the church, she was part of the September 6th group in 1993. She said she'd only experienced the negative. Then she said, when, when I went to meet with an apostle who would aid my return on my way in, I encountered one person. Elder Packer was just entering the hallway. He was facing me directly. He was in a wheelchair. And I thought, this is uncanny. He smiled and waved at me. He had no idea who I was. He was very pleasant. And I said, Elder Packer, it's wonderful to see you. How are you? And he just smiled. And I thought to myself, this is the man who so many of us were frustrated with and who was the recipient of so much negative energy and vitriol from the Internet for so many years. And here he is in a wheelchair. He's declining. And I was fine. And this is the part that I love the most. Sister Hank said, I felt nothing but compassion and love for him. 
and it was a profound sense of reversal, the opposite side of the gate. It was a beautiful experience. And I just love that experience. I love what it what it indicates and what it manifests, the spirit of redemption, the spirit of reconciliation, and of unification, that, that spiritual power that is accessible to disciples of Christ, including members of the church, as we strive to come closer to him. That spiritual power is something that we can strive to access and that we can receive and that God gives us in his way and in his time. And I know that that's something each one of us can strive for and can receive. Yeah, and I just want to kind of finish with you. Having talked to Maxine personally and uh, and also having heard her speak numerous times in interviews and having heard her tell her story, I, I think in the moment she would be honest and say that in the moment that that discipline was happening, she was angry and she was frustrated. But having heard her now tell that story, she looks back and where she's at today, this, you know, in the present tense, she is grateful for the experiences and, and she wouldn't change those. In many ways, it's that discipline that led her to coming back and being, in a sense, a completely different person now than the person who left. And I often see when these public um, disciplinary councils happen, and we've, we've had some recently in the last few months with, with some, you know, members of the church who are in the public eye. And I can tell from some of them they're frustrated and they're angry of what's happening. But I look back at that September 6th and see Maxine kind of in that same boat and, and yet know that today she's very much at peace, very comfortable being back in the church and, and being a member of the, of the church. And I don't know that she would trade any of that experience, uh, at all. I just, I, and I think each of us maybe as we're going through life and we've each got weaknesses and, and we're repenting, which, which obviously at its root is to simply to change. And as we become more and more Christ-like, I look back at my life and I, I treasure, I don't, I don't mean I treasure my sins, but I treasure the experience of learning from those and the opportunity they've given me to be better. And I hope maybe just kind of finishing off with you, Chris, that each of us might look at church discipline and realize that at the end of the day, Christ designed this, this practice of, of some of us as being in leadership roles and helping others to make changes that this is, is part of his end goal to bring us back unto him. As God says, right, it is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality, eternal life of man. And, and that is the end desire. And church discipline plays a, uh, I believe, a sacred role in that. And, uh, and so those are my thoughts. Great. Yeah, I know that we can access that grace that Jesus Christ has for us, that each of us has our own spiritual journey. And uh, it's not fair for us to compare our spiritual journeys with each other. And we don't have perfect understanding of each other's spiritual journeys. But as we walk in our spiritual journeys, we can experience that grace and that love. Uh, and and we should relish those experiences and remember those and hold on to those and let those be our guideposts in our life. Uh, through dark times, through difficult times, we should remember the, the light that we felt and uh, the peace and the hope that we felt. Because we can feel that, and that can be part of our life, and we need to let that be part of our life, an important, lasting part of our life. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Chris Reeve, grateful to have you back on Mormon Discussion, uh, and grateful to have a chance to sit down with you and talk to you about a, a serious and I think also a sacred subject. My pleasure. Thanks for having me me on, Bill. I hope uh, something that uh, that we talked about today may be of some value to someone out there. 
that you might feel just a little bit more of God's love for you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Say what they will now you say